toll. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. In Romans 8, Paul has been teaching that God is sovereign. He's also been teaching in the rest of Romans that the Jewish people are special, they've received God's word in, in, in the Old Testament, and so on. But he's faced with an objection, with a question, which is, if this is so, then why do so few Jewish people actually believe? And Paul is answering this question in Romans 9. He says at the beginning, this is because of God's sovereign call, and he says that God's promise has not failed. But now he has to deal with objections. And what we're looking at just now, I think, is a kind of Q&A, a biblical Q&A, question and answer. And uh, I said to somebody when I was coming in that I've got 20 points, so set your watches. Uh, no, I, we, there are just... I want to be very, very careful with this. Uh, I hope we're always careful with the scripture, but I want you to follow the, the text very, very carefully because there are, there's a limit to what we can say, but we, we should say it. Paul had been preaching many years, and he knew the objections that would come, and there are basically two objections, and uh, maybe just ten principles I'll take for each. The first objection is this. That's not fair. If God chooses some but not others, that's not fair. And I suspect the vast majority of people in this place tonight would say, yes, I I agree with that. It certainly does not appear to be fair. So let me cite, um, I'm, I'm sorry for doing this as I often do it, but John Calvin, who had some just a wonderful thing to say about this. And uh, just bear with this for, with me, please. What shall we say in talking about this passage? The flesh cannot hear of this wisdom of God without being instantly disturbed by numberless questions. And I would suggest if, as we read this passage, you don't have questions, you're half asleep and you're not thinking. But we have numberless questions and without attempting in a manner to call God to account. So we, we, we are people who want to call God to account. But God, that's not fair. God, this is not right. We hence find, says Calvin, that the apostle, whenever he treats of some high mystery, obviates the many absurdities by which he knew the minds of men would be otherwise possessed. For when, for when, he, when men hear anything of what Scripture teaches respecting predestination, they are especially entangled with very many impediments. Which is why most of us, and I would include myself in this, do not like often thinking about this because there are so many questions and so many uh, what Calvin calls impediments that come in upon us. He goes on, the predestination of God is indeed in reality a labyrinth from which the mind of man can by no means extricate itself. But so unreasonable is the curiosity of man that the more perilous the examination of a subject is, the more boldly he proceeds. So that when predestination is discussed, as he cannot restrain himself within due limits, he immediately, through his rashness, plunges himself, as it were, into the depths of the sea. What remedy then is there for the godly? Must they avoid every thought of predestination? By no means. 
For as the Holy Spirit has taught us nothing but what it's good for us to know, the knowledge of this would no doubt be useful, provided it be confined to the word of God. Let this then be our sacred rule, to seek to know nothing concerning it except what Scripture teaches us. When the Lord closes his holy mouth, let us also close our mouths, that we may not go farther. But as we are men to whom foolish questions naturally occur, and that also includes, of course, women, uh, let us hear from Paul how they are to be met. So, is it not unfair for God to choose some and to reject others? Paul's answer to that is to cite Exodus 33:19. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So I'm just going to give you some very basic principles that we can take from these verses. Number one, God is never unjust or unfair. Never. That's, that's where you start. It is ridiculous as far as Paul is concerned and as, part, as far as we are concerned. We cannot charge God with injustice or unfairness. It doesn't mean to say we understand. It doesn't mean to say we don't have questions. But it's a fundamental. God is never unjust or unfair. Number two, you should never ignore or try to explain away what you do not like so that you turn it into something you do like. One of the reasons that I ended up in the free church and therefore I ended up here was in the church I was in in Edinburgh, the minister was preaching on Romans and he said, well, the only way I can make sense of this is God predestines us to heaven, the devil predestines us to hell and we have the choice. And I thought, that's neat, that's nice, but it's not what it says. And it started me questioning, and I ended up um, arguing with the minister, no, uh, in public at the first time anyway. Uh, and I think, but that's not what it says, that's not what it says. And uh, at some point he suggested to me it might be better if I went to another church. Um, I thought he was being nice to me. I realize now he was getting rid of me. But um, it's what, for me, it was one of the reasons that I ended up being here. That's not what it says. So you shouldn't try and twist it. Sometimes the teaching is hard, but you have to hold it in a creative tension, and then God gives light. Principle number three, we should never approach this subject as though it were a debating society or something for us to fight about. Christians do fight about this, and and they'll talk about, are you a Calvinist or an Arminian or whatever, and and I, I think that's just very, very unwise and not helpful. Number four, we have to approach this with humility. I think it's right for us to say, I don't understand this. In fact, isn't that what Paul says? Go to the end of chapter 11 after you discuss this and Israel and everything else. Chapter 11, verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For th- from him and through him and to him are all things. To, whom, to him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul doesn't come here and say, I understand this. I've got it all. It's all worked out. What Paul says is, who can know the mind of God? And there is a problem with any of us as Christians when we reduce the gospel to a system or to a formula or to a package which we think we have grasped and we have understood. In fact, I think it is so much more exciting if you come and hear God's word and it blows your mind. 
And you're going, what? I, wow, I don't get that. But what we do is we, we turn God, we, we make God in our own image. And I think that's wrong. We need to approach with humility. Our spirit needs to be right. It's not a question of your intellect. It's not a question of your background. It's a question of attitude. Number five is this. This is not a doctrine that's essential to salvation. There are Christians who disagree with this. But I would argue that if you miss the teaching on, on this, it's, it's something that actually, rather than being a source of puzzlement or confusion, can be a great comfort. Number six, God's actions can be judged by nothing beyond his own nature as revealed in Scripture. And that's why this verse is, is, is quoted. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Because here's the question. Not are you free to choose, but is God free to choose? And our God is a sovereign God. We've been singing, he's a holy God. We've been singing, behold our God, seated on his throne. Do we really believe that? Or do we believe that we are on the throne and he is our servant? He says, salvation does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Now, this is where you have to be really, really careful. Because he's saying God's mercy. Not God's justice. Why? Because salvation is not based on God's justice. If God was to give you justice, give me justice, none of us would be saved. Not one of us. God's mercy and compassion cannot be dependent on anything outside of his own free grace. If God saves you because you're good, if God saves you because he knows you've got the intelligence to choose him, if God saves you because of your background, then it's not ultimately his mercy. He's saving you because of something within you, something that you deserve. So this is not about righteousness, so the question of fairness doesn't come in. Because to, if God was to be fair, and just in that alone, all humanity is condemned before him. Ah, but surely then God should be merciful to all. Why? God is pleased to show mercy. He's not bound to show mercy. The danger here is that we turn God into a principle, something mechanical, or something like the sun. The sun is, is bound to shine upon all. But is God's mercy bound to be shown to all? And Paul argues, no, not at all. He's saying, the question is really, why does God show mercy to anyone? God could let the whole of humanity perish, and that would be just. Now we'll come back to that. Number seven, look at verse 16. Uh, <clears throat> it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort. And the word that's used there for effort is running. Now any of you who run, there are some of you who run. Some of you have run marathons, I know that, I'm envious. It requires a degree of effort. What Paul is teaching here is that our salvation does not depend on our effort, but purely on God's mercy. See, that's the trouble with religion as such, or man-made religion, because it inevitably ends up about effort. So you're here tonight and you say, I've really, really tried to be a Christian. I've really tried to be a Christian. 
It's like New Year's resolutions. You know, I really, really tried not to eat chocolate, and it's only the sixth, and I've already broken that resolution. Well, I didn't try because I thought it wasn't worth it, and I relied on the mercy of my wife. Um, but we, we say, well, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try and do something, and we can't do it. And, and in, in a lot of religion, people say, I'm going to try. I'm going to try. I'm going to try. And Paul says, no, 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 no. It doesn't depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Principle number eight, we go by what the scripture says. The scripture says to Pharaoh, isn't it interesting, by the way, look at that. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, but it was God who said to Pharaoh. When scripture speaks, God speaks. And that's why Christians who keep taking away from the scripture, you're taking away so much. Paul, in fact, in this whole chapter, it's Old Testament quotation after Old Testament quotation after Old Testament quotation. What's he doing? He's saying, if you've got hard questions, then get them answered from Scripture. I have had the privilege uh, last year of writing uh, a book for um, 14 to 17-year-olds. And it was a book of questions that I uh, sent out to people all over the world. Well, I sent it and said, what questions do teenagers have? And I didn't ask the youth leaders and I didn't ask the ministers. I just said, you get in touch with your young people. And they sent hundreds of questions. And what was an absolute joy for me was just to be able to look at these questions and then take a passage of scripture and try and encourage the young people. The book will come out later this year. But it was just a thrill to me to see how all the questions that we have that are of any importance, are answered by Scripture. And that's what Paul is doing here. And so he gives Pharaoh as an example. He says, let, let me tell you about God's mercy and, and God hardening who he wants to harden and so on. And he says, Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. Well, there are lots of questions in there. Why Pharaoh? And why did God not stop Pharaoh at once? Why did he allow all this? You read Exodus and you see all that happens. Look what it says, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Why did God allow Pharaoh to oppress the Israelites? Why did he allow them to kill off their children? Why did he allow them them to to follow them and chase them and attack them and then delivering them in the Red Sea? The answer is that God wanted his power to be shown and his name to be proclaimed in all the earth. And because of that, In every single country in the world today, God's power and name is proclaimed because of that story, because of what happened. Or in the New Testament, Acts 2.22, Peter says this, fellow Israelites, listen to this, Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourself know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. So God raised Pharaoh as an example. God had the Romans as an example, and the the Pharisees as an example. And they, they crucified his son, But it was God's purpose to save for himself a multitude which no one can count. 
Principle number nine. God does not harden anyone who does not harden themselves. We know that about Pharaoh. Several times it is recorded that God hardened Pharaoh, but it's also recorded that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So how does God harden? It's not as though we are people who are willing and want to become Christians and we want to love God and we want to serve Jesus and then God says, right, zap, I'm hardening you so you don't want to do it. What happens, we find, if we go back into Romans chapter 1, is that God abandons us to our own stubbornness. In chapter 1, we're told God gave them over to their own depravity. He does that in different ways. One is he withdraws his restraining influence. So when the sun is withdrawn, the ground is frozen and melts. When God withdraws his word, his spirit, his blessing upon a community, upon a people, then a hardness comes in. Sometimes there's a hardness that comes by God displaying his mercy. How can that be? The Pharisees and the scribes were furious at the mercy of Jesus being shown to people. God's word to Isaiah, make the heart of this people calloused, is what Jesus applies to his own ministry and Paul to his. Jesus knew that when he was doing some miracles and when he was proclaiming God's word, there would be people who wouldn't listen. And in fact, it would be the opposite. And you know, for me, that's actually quite a solemn responsibility, that I'm teaching God's word, and for some, it's wonderful when, if you like, the ground unfreezes, the heart unfreezes. But for others, you realize they're listening to God's word, they're listening to God's word, they're listening to God's word, and they're getting harder and harder and harder. Now, in all of this, go back to the first principle, God is not and cannot ever be unjust. Already in this letter, Paul has demonstrated that all human beings are sinful and guilty in God's sight. Read chapter 3 from verse 9 to verse 19. If God hardens some, he's not being unjust because that is what their sin deserves. If he has compassion on some, that's not unjust, that's his mercy. The wonder is not that some are saved and others are not. The wonder is that any are saved. If anyone is lost, the blame is ours. If anyone is saved, the credit is God's. The last thing just to say on this is about this hardening is, is it final? Just go across to chapter 11, and we will look at this uh, when we come to chapter 11, but it's, it's important in this context. Chapter 11 and verse 7. What then? What Israel sought so earnestly, it did not obtain, but the elect did. The others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor and so on. But then go to verse 11. Again I ask, did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. There can be a hardening in part. There can be a hardening for a time. It is not always the case that the hardening is always final. And again, just let me express this personally. I've known people who have been very, very hardened to the gospel. Very hardened. And then when I've met them again, maybe a couple of years later or several years later, they're Christians. And and God has done something quite remarkable in their lives. So the first question, is it not unfair for God to choose some and reject others? No, it can't be because God is never unfair and the various other things that I've put in there. 
The second question, verse 19, let's just do that to verse 23, and I think that will be us for tonight. Um, One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it? Why do you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Do you know what Paul is doing here? In effect, he's almost saying, I have no answer. I don't know the answer. Earlier in the letter, in chapter 1 and chapter 2, he stated that people are responsible for their rejection of the truth of God. In chapter 10, he will say the same about Israel. And what he's telling us here is that God's sovereignty and man's responsibility go together, but he doesn't know how exactly they go together. So again, let me just take some basic principles. Number one, God is the potter. We are the clay. Paul's answer tells us about God, not about ourselves primarily. All he's doing here is he's saying, we don't have a right to sit in judgment upon God. He is the creator. We are the creation. In every village in Israel, people, the image of the potter would have been very familiar. Someone sitting there making pottery. In Jeremiah, I won't read the whole passage, but Jeremiah 18, the image is used very powerfully of a potter remaking a pot that had been spoiled. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, go down to the potter's house and there I will give you my message. So I went down to the potter's house and I saw him working at the wheel, but the pot he was shaping from the clay was marred in his hands. So the potter formed it into another pot, shaping it as seemed best to him. Then the word of the Lord came to me. He said, can I not do with you, Israel, as this potter does, declares the Lord. Like clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, Israel. And he then goes on to explain what that means and encourages them to turn from their evil ways. Now, here's what we do. It's an inevitable part of our human pride, but I also think culturally it's what we're tied into doing in Western culture. And I see this happening in the church all the time. We reverse the roles. We make God in our image. What right do we have to challenge our maker? Now Paul is not saying we don't have a right to ask questions. The whole of the book of Romans is, I believe, answers to questions that he was being asked. But what we don't have the right to do is to talk back to God. You know how a small child may talk back to their parent? It's right for a child to ask questions. It's wrong for a child to think that they are wiser than their parents. How much more so us with God? There's a spirit of rebellion against God and the refusal to let God be God. I think you have to be careful with the potter and the clay image, by the way, because we are also created in the image of God. We are rational and moral beings. There is a, a human dignity and therefore at times in scripture you, we, people fall down on their face before God and he tells us, stand up and let me talk with you. So, but it is important to remember God is the potter. We are the clay. And in our arrogance we sometimes reverse that. Secondly, notice what he says. God is patient with the objects of his wrath. Let me read verse 22. 
What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the object of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? God is patient with those who are described as the objects of his wrath. Like Pharaoh and the Israelites. Now, you have to be really, really careful because our instinct when we read this is to say, wait a minute, this is teaching God prepares some people for wrath and he prepares other people for salvation. It's not what it says. It doesn't say that God prepares people for wrath and destruction. It says that they are. Now, who, who, who is doing the preparation? What this is teaching us is that God has the right to deal with sinful beings as he wishes, but why are they sinful? Did God make them sinful? God is acting in perfect accord with his justice and mercy. And the the words that are used here carry the idea more of fitted for destruction or suitable for destruction. It's a different word from whom he prepared in advance for glory. So God is teaching two things. God has prepared the objects of his mercy and there are Others who fitted themselves for destruction. Let me put it this way. And this is important. God never created a sinner. God never created human beings to sin. He did not create this lump of fallen humanity. You go back to Genesis 1 and 2. And if you believe what it says, and I do, God created humanity and he saw that humanity, mankind, was very good. Not just good, but very good. But there's been a fall. And I think it's important to grasp this. God did not create people to be sinners and for hell. Now let me quote Martin Lloyd-Jones on this, whose, whose whole book of sermons on this, on chapter 9, is just wonderful. Paul does not say that God created some people to honor and some to dishonor. He's not talking about creation and saying that God created some people to go to hell. The clay is something that has already been created. This is about God's relationship to fallen humanity. God could justly walk away from the whole of humanity. After the fall, after mankind chose To listen to the devil rather than to God, God could have wiped his hands of the whole of humanity, but he didn't. Again, let me quote Lloyd-Jones directly, because I think this is very important. Some people get hold of the idea that God deliberately made some people that they might go to hell. That is a lie. It is not taught anywhere in scripture. What Paul is talking about here is what God does with fallen humanity, and that is true of the whole of humanity. Now that is very important because it would indeed be an insurmountable problem if you thought this passage was teaching God creates some people for heaven and some people for hell. He doesn't. But, we keep going, the key question in this is are you really prepared, if you like, to let God be God or should God's actions be limited to our understanding? We have no right to limit God to our limited understanding. That's point four. Point five, salvation is all of God's mercy. If you're lost, it's because of your choice, it's because you're part of sinful humanity, and because you choose to live that way. 
If you are saved, it is because of God's mercy. I listened to an interview with Mez McConnell of 20 Schemes, which was typical Mez, uh, irritating and annoying and wonderful all at the same time, which is why I like him a lot. Um, and he said something fascinating. His story, for those of you who don't know it, uh, to say he had a rough background is to put it mildly. He went from care home to care home. He was abusive and violent and everything else. And he was converted through Christians like Callum showing hospitality to him when he came out of prison, Christians whom he tried to beat up. And in one of their homes, picking down Matthew Henry's commentary on the whole Bible and reading the commentary on Romans. And he was converted through that. Why? Because Romans, he saw, taught him that whereas his social workers and counselors and everyone else had told him it wasn't his fault, it was the way he was brought up, if only he'd been brought up somewhere else or in a better family, he would be fine. Romans taught him that he was a sinner and that he was responsible for his own sin. And that caused him to seek Christ. Salvation is all of God's mercy. Now let me just say, just a, a, a sixth point here. This is not determinism. Let me explain what that means. Most of the, uh, our culture believe in determinism, that things are determined by other than ourselves. So, for example, if you're a communist and you followed Karl Marx and you believed in dialectical materialism, you can explain the whole of human history and how human beings interact with one another in terms of uh, economics, materialism, labor and supply, and so on. Or you could believe in biological determinism. It's in your genes. There's no free will at all. You can't help it. Ultimately, if you end up being a rapist, well, that's because it's genetically in you. If you're bad-tempered, if you're um, you know, abusive, and so on. Now, our genes are incredibly important, and the Circumstances of our environment and the economy are all incredibly important. But are we really believing? Are we really saying that people don't have any responsibility? And here's the bizarre thing. We live in a culture where so many people would say, you believe in predestination. That's awful. And yet they teach that human beings are predestined because of their genes or because of their circumstances. I can't help it. Way I am. Way I was made. Way I was brought up. God's word says you can. Or there's another kind of determinism, psychological determinism, very closely linked to the biological one. And this is the influence, the malevolent influence of Freud, who also taught there is no free will. And you, you used to get, I'm, I'm sure you don't get it now, but people would argue whether you were breastfed or bottle fed. That indicated your character, what you would be like, everything that happened to you when you were a child. And again, what happens to us in our youth, how we are brought up, it's all very important. But if you start saying to people, you can't help it because you were bottle fed or something, I mean, that's crazy. But there are people who actually believe that. Now, what Paul is not saying here is he's not saying, look, God decided I'm going to create that one and they're going to hell and that one, they're going to heaven. He's saying, no, humanity was created good. The whole of humanity fell. All humanity deserves to be without God, and he has chosen to save some. Why? Verse 22. 
What if? He's, and, and notice what Paul does in verse 22 and 23. He says, what if, what if, and he doesn't answer. Begins a sentence, doesn't answer it, which is typically Paul. But he's, it, he kind of gives the answer in the question. Maybe God did this to show his character. Maybe God permitted Pharaoh to be like that so people could see that God was utterly opposed to sin. If God did not punish sin and was not seen to punish sin, how would we know about this aspect of God's character? It's the same with the question, why does God allow so much evil and suffering in the world? Christians ask it, non-Christians ask it as well in terms of mocking. The answer given here by Paul is great patience. What if it's because of God's great patience? What also if he wants to show humanity that we cannot save ourselves? Why didn't God send Jesus after Adam sinned? Why not straight away? Why did we have to go through thousands of years of Old Testament history? Why not after Abraham? Why not after David? Why was there a 400-year gap between the end of the Old Testament and John the Baptist coming? Maybe you've never ever thought of those questions. I used to think about them. Why didn't God save instantly? Well, Paul suggests it's because of his patience, because he wants to show humanity that we cannot save ourselves, because he's compassionate and he wants to show his glory. Everything that God does is a revelation of his character, his creation and his salvation. Now, I want to ask at this point for those who are unbelievers. Sometimes you'll get people like this. This once did happen to me um, in Stornoway, where else? where I was accosted in a public toilet by a drunk man who wanted to talk about predestination. He had no idea that I was a free church minister. That's not why he got hold of me. It just, that's what was on his mind. If you're not a Christian, predestination, you know, it's got nothing to do with you. That's not the question. The question is, why don't you believe the gospel? The question is, why don't you follow Jesus? You can't start going into things that are way beyond the basic milk of God's word and what God asks you. He asks you why you don't believe in Jesus. But for those of us who are Christians, it's just, you'll notice this phrase, what if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy? If you're a Christian, that's who you are. How does this show the riches of God's glory? God's glory is God's perfect love. God's glory is the perfect manifestation of God's character. How does it show his glory? Let me explain it in this way. If you've watched the television series Blue Planet, David Attenborough, it's utterly amazing. It's amazing the life that is in the sea. And we watched recently one where he goes right down beneath the Antarctic and (coughs) they have this um, submarine that goes down the deepest that ever human beings have gone. And it's just extraordinary, the life that exists there. Apparently, a third of the life on earth is just in that one area, that deep level of the sea. And it's just absolutely marvelous. And Annabelle, as she was watching it, was just saying, and I agree, you know, how can you see all this? How can you see all this intricacies and, and, and life and everything? This wonderful creation and not accept the creator. It's incredible. Yeah, even walking around Dundee this week, um, I was so irritated 
because I was walking down to the church here and I was listening as I do to a podcast and radio and there was this journalist on talking about the V&A and saying Dundee was ugly and brutal and the V&A would beautify it. And as it was, I was walking down this place called the Miley and coming on to um, Balgay Hill in the cemetery and the sun was shining and the light and it was absolutely stunning. So I thought, right, yeah, this is really wrong. So I just took a whole bunch of photos and posted them on and said, open your eyes. Open your eyes. There's extraordinary beauty in the midst of whatever ugliness humanity manages to put there. But you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying, the glory of God is seen in creation. It's seen in providence. It's seen in the punishment of sin. But all of that is eclipsed by this extraordinary fact that anyone at all is a Christian and is saved. The angels look on in astonishment. Grace is shown to those who deserve the opposite. And this is repeated so many times by Paul. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. See, when you're saying, how, how did, why doesn't God save everyone? Our rebellion against God is such, and God is so glorious, that for anyone to be saved is a greater act than the creation of the world. You know, that's why Jesus said, what did he say? Remember what Jesus said? He said to his disciples, those who believe in me will do greater things than I have done. What did Jesus do? He raised from the dead. How are you going to beat that one? You claim to be a miracle worker. I tell you. The greater thing you're going to do is tell people about Christ so that Christ's spirit takes his word and people are born again. People are saved. The riches of God's glory that he's talking about here are seen in us. The riches of his glory are made known known to us. We sang this morning... The church is God's new creation by water and the word. God's new creation is more glorious than his old creation because it's a redeemed creation. There is a despairing side to this. Um, Let me finish with this. Some, as I say, may struggle in different ways and some may even, you may struggle in yourself and say, oh, this is terrible. God has prepared me for destruction. No, he hasn't. You prepare yourself for destruction. God doesn't prepare you for destruction. But God invites you to himself. For those of us who are Christians, the question of why some people are saved and not others, we don't know. We cannot comprehend the incomprehensible. Really, the question we should be asking is, and can it be? That I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died he for me who caused his pain. For me who him to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that thou my God shouldst die for me? Because we're going to see God's glory because of his mercy. We're going to know the riches of his glory because of his mercy. And when we die we will be in glory because of his mercy. Not because of our background, our ancestry, not because of our character, not because we belong to the Jewish nation or the Scottish nation, 
but because of the free electing grace and love of God. And that's why, if you go back to Romans 8, it makes so much sense. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. Why? For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why will nothing separate us? Not because you are good. Not because you're going to live a great life until the day you die. Not because you are going to read the Bible and pray and serve Christ in different ways. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ because God has poured out his mercy upon you. And you don't deserve it. Not one. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. And it's wonderful. You don't have to think, oh, I've got to earn this. I've got to, you know, it's like, isn't it like a relationship with a parent? If you're a child, what a horrible relationship if you think, if you're brought up in a home where you think you constantly have to keep earning your father's or your mother's love. But to know that they love you because you are their child, not because you tidy your room. That'll make you tidy your room. But to know that, Well, it's the same with God. And to me, I can only see two options here fundamentally. Either salvation is something which God does, but we cooperate in, and some of it is part of us, and therefore it is very shaky. Or it's something that God has done out of his free mercy, and we're going, why me, Lord? Why me? We don't know I also tell you this, it's liberating in terms not, don't think this is like the frozen chosen, the few. There's a number. I know that the gospel is going to work throughout. I know when, when I, you know, hear about Callum in Romania, we send you back, Callum, absolutely certain that God will continue to work and purpose. Because that's what he's determined to do. And God's plan and purpose always works out. And that is what Paul is teaching here. It's not a deep, well, it is deep, but it's not a philosophical argument. It's not a kind of, let's see if we can fit everything into this box. He's just simply saying, listen, the only reason that you Romans are Christians is because God chose you. And the only reason that this has happened to the Jewish people, yes, he's saying there are some. And next week and the week after, we'll go and see on about how God continues to work amongst the Jewish people. But he's just simply saying, You didn't do this. God did it. So your salvation is sure and secure. I mentioned the the two views, if you like, what some call the chain of salvation. If that chain of salvation is a thousand links and one of those links is me, it's going to break. If that chain is a thousand links and it is all of God's mercy and grace, then I am eternally secure. That's why Calvin called this doctrine a really hard one, but a great comfort for the Lord's people. Let's not go beyond what Scripture says, but let's say what Scripture says. And let's not try to square the circle. God's sovereignty, man's responsibility are both taught in the Bible. Let's seek to follow God's word and let's worship the one 
who has determined to reveal in glory to the his glory, his glorious riches to the objects of his mercy. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Bless it to us. And although it's hard and difficult in some ways for us to comprehend and understand, we bless you that we are not called to that. But we are called to accept what you say and to be so grateful and so thankful that salvation is all of grace and all of mercy. And in your grace and mercy, you have called us here to hear your word. Enable us to respond with thankful and willing and obedient hearts. In your name, amen. We are going to finish.